Good morning. Uh, we're going to get started in just a minute with our Grand Rounds presentation for this morning. Uh, but before we do, we thought it'd be nice if we all took a moment of silence uh, in, in honor of uh, Dr. Salazar's father, who recently uh, recently passed, uh, Jose Salazar. All right, thank you. So this morning, the uh, Child and Adolescent Division is, uh, is very excited to uh, do our annual sponsorship of Grand Rounds and have a, a tremendous uh, speaker uh, lined up regarding the issue of suicide. As I'm sure uh, everyone in the room knows, this is a huge public health problem that is not intrinsic just to the pediatric field. Uh, it, it cuts across all ages throughout our lifespan. Uh, we see it as particularly over at the, at the IOL, uh, but um, you can see it everywhere you go nowadays. It's endemic in, in schools, uh, neighborhoods, uh, all communities across the country. Rates of suicide have been rising dramatically over the past few years. And what's been very uh, interesting and exciting for us is that at the IOL, we've, been, we've become part of the Zero Suicide Initiative, uh, a national movement to attempt to not only lower, but uh, prevent uh, suicidal behavior and as well as suicidal thinking. And suicidal thinking and behavior is certainly uh, not uh, not just uh, present within the adolescent population, it extends down even into a childhood. And um, as you're probably aware also, CCMC has been engaged in much more screenings of uh, suicidal behavior within the past few years. Uh, we do this routinely now in the emergency room under the direction of uh, Steve Rogers and his staff. Uh, but also in our new transitions uh, clinic. And as I mentioned, this is extended over to the uh, IOL. But anyway, I don't want to dwell on this. I'm going to let Dr. Lisa Namro, our, uh, our wonderful uh, child consultant, uh, introduce our speaker for this morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, it is a great pleasure and honor to have Dr. Horwitz with us today. She has spent her entire career um, promoting the notion that uh, among the places to screen for suicide, um, the, the one that is the most important is here in medical settings. Um, and she has been a remarkable influence on us, uh, on Connecticut Children's. And again, as Dr. Um, Saul said, under the leadership of Dr. Rogers, who also uh, took on zero suicide here at Connecticut Children's, um, we have been screening um, in our emergency department. So here's a question for all of you. Um, are we, are, is Connecticut Children's screening just the behavioral health children um, as JCO requested uh, of us, or are we screening every child who walks in to the emergency department? What do folks think? So just behavioral health patients? Um, all patients. How many people initially when you hear that think that, ooh, how are we doing that if you're coming in with vomiting, headache, fever, gastroenteritis? Does that make some people a little skittish or concerned? Um, I think the honest truth is that it, it does. Um, how can we do that? How can we take children? Oh my gosh, parent, parents are gonna scream and they're gonna rant, they're gonna rave. How, how are you asking? Um, and this has been Dr. Uh, Horowitz's thesis her entire career, um, which is that uh, yes, it is the setting to screen for suicide. Um, and yes, if you do it universally, um, not only will you be saving lives, 
but if that is what you do at your institution, um, families and staff can get used to it and be, become comfortable with it. Um, and it is when I heard Dr. Hurwitz um, speak a couple years ago in our clinical pathways work, and I thought, okay, this woman is remarkable. She's got a message to give. It is a message she's been giving since 2007. And, and remarkably enough, Connecticut Children's is among, uh, Lisa, you can tell us how many, but uh, maybe a handful of pediatric hospitals that are doing universal screening. So we are out there in the in the rate in the ether space. This is a remarkable thing that's happening here at Connecticut Children's and it is really unique, um, even though the messenger has been trying to, to bring this across for so many years. And the resistance is, how can you do that? If you're coming in with a headache or a stomachache or a fever, how can you be asking these kind of questions? People will be upset. And I think at the end of this morning's talk, you will realize that that's not the case. And with suicide being the second leading cause of death, and with children who complete suicide, often seeing a primary care or medical provider within 30 days prior to the attempt or the completed act, children who present to medical hospitals are a, a, a risk group. So that's, that's how sobering it is. So a little more on Dr. Uh, Horwitz. She uh, went to Tufts University, um, go Boston. Um, she went to George Washington University for clinical psychology, Harvard School of Public Health, just because you didn't have enough degrees, Lisa, um, and clinical effectiveness. Um, psychology intern at Beth Israel, pediatric psychology fellow. So she did a lot of work in medical settings um, prior to launching on this campaign. And honestly, if you look at her CV, um, she really, you have been speaking on this since 2007. And it is now 2020 and maybe people are coming around. Um, and a remarkable article that was just published with Dr. Horwitz as the co-author was Suicide Risk Screening in Pediatric Hospitals, Clinical Pathways to Address a Global Health Crisis. And that was in Psychosomatics in August of uh, 2019. So without further ado, it is absolutely remarkable and an honor to have you here. Thank you for influencing us. Um, and thank you for coming all the way from Florida. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you, Dr. Namro and Dr. Rogers for having me here. Um, it's, it's, it's such an honor to be here, uh, especially at a hospital that is doing universal screening. And like Dr. Namro said, it is only a handful that are forging ahead with universal screening. Um, so I have to put this slide up because I'm from the government and um, I don't have any conflicts to disclose. I'm excited to especially be here in Connecticut because usually I have to disclose that I have a New Jersey accent. I'm going to talk really fast, but you guys will understand it. Um, okay, so um, actually before uh, we get started, can I just see a show of hands of people who have been touched by suicide in some way, either professionally or personally? Yeah, so that happens everywhere I go. Um, while suicide is a relatively rare event, the ripples effect are, are just endless. Uh, the way I got interested in suicide prevention research was in, back in the 90s when I was a young trainee up in Boston. My first patient that I saw in my emergency department rotation was a young man in his early 20s who was brought in by some ends because they were worried about him harm and most likely had untreated bipolar disorder. And I evaluated him, went up to my supervisor and we decided, or my supervisor decided that he had to be hospitalized. And so he said to me, you're gonna have to send him to a psychiatric hospital. Don't tell him until the EMTs show up because he's gonna be really upset. So this made me really nervous. This was my very first patient I was gonna tell they had to be hospitalized. So I went, I waited for the EMTs to show up. I went down to the, the ED and there was a security guard outside his room. I went in with the nurse. There were two EMTs behind me and I went over to him and I was so nervous. And I said, Mr. You know, Mr. Jones, uh, we're really concerned about your safety. So we're gonna send you to a psychiatric hospital so you can get treatment. And he said, okay, let me just go get my coat. And I thought, oh, phew, you know, what a relief. That wasn't so bad. And so he crossed the room, picked up his coat, stuck his hand in his pocket, pulled out a fistful of pills and ingested them. 
And it, it was just so stunning to me, not only to watch somebody do that, but to watch somebody do that in a hospital where we're supposed to keep people safe. So this really launched me off to a, a path of how do we detect suicide risk early and then how do we keep people safe in hospitals? So I am gonna talk about suicide as a national and global public health threat and then talk about the epidemiology of suicide, but mainly in the medical setting and describe research on how we develop this suicide risk detection tool that you're using here in the ED and how the research was applied to real world settings. I like to start with my take home slide first. And so I'm clearly an advocate as Dr. Navarro said for universal suicide risk screening in all patients and I'm hoping by the end of this to convince you not only to universally screen in your emergency department, but actually housewide. And so, and we also think the best way to detect suicide risk is to ask directly about suicide. I, am, I believe that clinicians need uh, population specific and site specific instruments that have been tested. So a lot of hospitals use adult tools for kids but we want them to use tools that have been tested on kids for kids. And then I'm gonna talk about this three-tiered pathway that Dr. Namaro mentioned, where you start out with a brief screen, a 20-second screen like the ask, and then the most critical step being this middle step, the brief suicide safety assessment, and that helps the clinician determine the next steps. And this is what makes or breaks a screening program, because that's the step that decides whether or not the patient needs a full safety evaluation and that all patients should be discharged with a safety plan and resources like the suicide hotline and the crisis text line and then uh, lethal means counseling. So these are some famous faces of suicide. Unfortunately, in the last few years, there have been some very famous people that have killed themselves. And um, I think some of the most tragic cases are these two on the bottom. They're all tragic, but these two on the bottom are Parkland students. Um, and those are the more well-known faces of suicide. The lesser known faces happen, uh, suicide happens 129 times every day in the United States and 25 of them are young people. So if we look at the death from major medical causes, and this slide now is a little bit old, but I'm gonna compare a peak period ending in 95 to a slightly more current period ending in 2012. And if we look at what people die from we, and advances in medicine, we'll see tremendous strides in leukemia, right? 90% of kids with leukemia now are cured and tremendous strides in heart disease and AIDS and stroke. And if you look at suicide, it's completely flat. We've not made a dent in the suicide rate in over 65 years. So when I talk about suicidality, I'm talking about anyone who volitionally is trying to end their own life, but I'm talking about an entire continuum. So everything from if I went to sleep and didn't wake up, uh, I wouldn't care to I have a gun at home and when my wife and children go out, I'm gonna kill myself. So the reason we look at the entire continuum is because everything along the continuum has been linked to completed suicide. So you never know. And more importantly, when we universally screen, what we're really looking for is uh, emotional distress because while most people who present for medical problems are not gonna go on to die by suicide, they probably, if they're having frequent thoughts of suicide, are, are struggling and they warrant further mental health attention. So just to go through some of the numbers, suicide is an international public health problem and upwards of 800,000 people around the world kill themselves every year. It is the second leading cause of death for youth all over the world. And in 2008, the WHO did a study that showed that more people died by suicide than war and homicide combined. It is the second leading cause of death for youth in the United States. And the, actually, the most recent CDC data came out last week, and this, this is actually really sad that the deaths, this part is, is not sad, this part is great, that the deaths of young people have dropped in 2018, so there's lesser deaths of young people, 10 to 24, than there were in 2017, but the percentage of those deaths from suicide have increased. So. 27% of young persons, of young people who died 
die by suicide. So can you imagine if 27% of people were dying from coronavirus or the flu or something like that? Can you imagine what would be mobilized? And yet, what are most people trained to treat who are treating young people? They're, they're not trained in suicide. So these are really important statistics, I think. Um, this is the death rate of suicide. This is a suicide rate over time. And you can just see it keeps creeping up. And this, this is what we're happy about is if you look at 2018, it didn't creep up that much. It creeped up, but just a little bit. I mean, that's the best that we can hope for now. And in fact, there's more deaths from suicide among young people than these seven other leading medical causes combined. Okay, so just a staggering public health problem. Uh, to give you the death rates by state, so there's a great variation among states with Alaska and now South Dakota having the highest rates. You can see Connecticut has one of the lowest rates. Now that's still, any suicide is one too many. So even though it's the lowest rate, it's still 5.8 per 100,000. And in uh, the fall, the CDC looked at 10 years of data among uh, youth, and they found that the suicide rate increased 56%. So this was breaking news back in the fall. And I was at a, um, when I was at ACAP, actually, there was a great presentation by the CDC and Deborah Stone showing this, and she gave me these slides just to show you. So when we look, when, when we look at kids, they have, if you look at just numbers, there's less kids that die by suicide than adults, but look at these increases. These are males and um, look at the females and that 10 to 14 year old age group, 225% increase. Now that's going from a little to, to still, you know, quite rare, but still look at the increases is just staggering. And then if you look by ethnicity and race, this black line, that's um, American Indian, Alaska Native. So there is also some racial disparities in the suicide rate. There's a myth that younger children don't die by suicide, but actually younger children do think about plan and die by suicide. And so it is this um, second leading cause of death for 10 to 14 year olds. Uh, we actually, when some of these numbers started coming out, we looked in our emergency department data and we found that the 10 to 12 year olds, at a, when we looked at all the 10 to 12 year olds in our study of over 500 um, young people, 29% of the 10 to 12 year olds screened positive for suicide risk with 17% reporting a past suicide attempt. So that's like a 10 year old telling you they've tried to kill themselves in the past. And then some, uh, Dr. Burstein looked at ED visits and saw that they were doubling. And when he looked at ED visits, he saw that 43% of them were kids under 12. I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. Jeffrey Bridge from Nationwide Children's and look at the suicide rate for kids under 12. And it looks stable if you look at it um, as a whole, but if you parse it out by race, you see this significant racial disparity for the rate for black children increasing while the rate for white children is going up. And the other important data to come out of the study was that almost a third of these kids had disclosed their suicidal thoughts to an adult before they die, right? So that's a tremendous opportunity for capture and rescue. So what makes these kids so tricky is most of the time they're not talking about it. And most of the time people who are about to kill themselves are not talking about it. And in fact, um, what's, what's even more scary is that uh, most a majority of people report less than 19 minutes between thinking about suicide and acting upon it. So that's what makes detection so early detection so important so that you can put coping skills on board. And these are the high risk factors of suicide. I'm not gonna go through them all. I highlighted the most potent risk factor, which is previous attempt. And then the majority of people who die by suicide have a mental illness. But people often overlook this one at the bottom, medical illness, that medical illness is a risk factor for suicide. And just like um, if you were a triage nurse and you we talk about suicide in terms of risk factors and warning signs. So if you were a triage nurse in an ED and someone came in with the risk factors for, suicide, uh, for heart attack, let's say they were a smoker, they were obese, they had a family history, 
they had high blood pressure. If they walked up to your triage desk, you wouldn't think they were having a heart attack. But if they came in clutching their test in pain and sweating profusely, you would think, okay, maybe they're having a heart attack. We like to think of suicide in the same way, that there's risk factors, and even more important are these warning signs. So I'm not going through all of them, but feeling hopeless, trapped, or like a burden, or some of the signs of depression, being isolated, withdrawn, showing extreme mood swings. These are all warning signs that someone might be at imminent risk for suicide. Okay, that's my dog, Wally. Um, I put him up because I thought I laid some very heavy statistics on you, thought we could all use a puppy right about now. But actually I use him as a pause because uh, this presentation is actually about hope because this is about suicide prevention and I think there's a lot of hope. So our research team has been asking, can we save lives by screening for suicide risk in the medical setting and in all medical settings? And we think the answer is yes. And so suicide in the hospital setting, very rare event in the the last 18 years, 20 years, there's been over 1,300 suicides in hospitals. And when we look at Joint Commission data, you find that about a quarter of them happen on non-behavioral health units. So those are places like the emergency department, the ICU, the cancer units, the med surge units. Um, so looking at their data in 2007, the Joint Commission established National Patient Safety Goal 15 which is that all behavioral health patients have to be screened for suicide risk in any medical setting. In 2016, they brought in this to recommend, this was not a mandate, but a recommendation that all medical patients should be screened for suicide risk. So this was the best thing to ever happen to suicide prevention in the medical setting was the Joint Commission was recommending, I don't expect you to read that, but they sent out a sentinel event alert saying all medical patients should be screened for suicide risk. Now, how do you know who's a behavioral health patient and who's a medical patient, right? Those are very tricky. So if I ask you what the top five most frequently reported Sentinel events are for the Joint Commission, who wants to take a guess at that? I'm gonna show you the top five, but who wants to take a guess at what, what's the number one Sentinel event? Sentinel event is when someone dies unexpectedly in a hospital. Anybody wanna take a guess? Okay, I'll show you, no brave souls. <laughs> Unintended retention of a farm body, okay, it's gauze, left in surgery patients. But I, I put this up to show you suicide is one of the top five. Um, and it's right up there with, fall, with fatal falls. Now we all know hospitals have routinized way of screening for fall risk, right? But they don't have routinized, usually they don't have routinized way of screening for suicide risk. And when you do root cause analysis of these sentinel events, you find the number one root cause is lack of assessment. So I'm going to talk about this in a, a little bit later, but there is a, this is really tough because there's a disconnection between what the Joint Commission is asking people, asking hospitals to do, and then the surveyor comes. And sometimes there's a disconnect between the Joint Commission and the surveyor. And so what happens is the hospital has to put in some very onerous uh, processes in place that don't always match up with the Joint Commission's thinking, but match up with what the surveyor's thinking, and it ends up that sometimes the patients suffer like they're like everybody who screens positive for suicide risk is needs a one-to-one -one sitter. That's ridiculous. That would shut down a program in a minute, but some hospitals do that. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. So under detection is, is this really uh, critical problem. And as Dr. Namuro mentioned this, the majority of people who die by suicide visit a healthcare provider sometimes weeks before their death. Right? So, this is true for kids too. 80% of kids had visited a healthcare provider in the year prior to their death. And then here's some more numbers just showing you that it's important. But the problem is these kids don't walk in and say, um, I want to kill myself. They're mostly presenting with somatic complaints. So if someone doesn't ask them directly, are you thinking of killing yourself? They're most likely not going to talk about it. So the majority of suicide attempters go unrecognized because the majority of medical settings don't screen for suicide risk. Okay, this is my favorite under detection slide. This is uh, an elephant in psychoanalysis. And um, we believe that suicide risk is the elephant in the room. And if we gave uh, clinicians the tools to ask about suicide, they could detect it and then help manage it. So fundamentals of screening, um, what, what do we screen for? Just in general, it has, the condition has to cause significant morbidity or mortality. 
Prevalence can't be too rare or too common. Early detection has to be critical and it can be effectively treated. So we believe suicide fits, checks all those boxes. You need to screen with tools that are brief, validated, easy to use. And I, I talked about this previously. I wanna discuss the difference between screening and assessment because this is really critical difference. A screener is meant to just flag someone who needs further evaluation. People will often criticize the tool I'm gonna to talk about, the ASK, and they'll say, well, the ASK doesn't predict who's gonna die by suicide. I'll say, absolutely not. This is a 20 second tool. It flags who requires further evaluation. An assessment is what does a more comprehensive evaluation, confirms the risks and guides the next steps. So I just wanna talk a little bit about the evolution of the, screen, of the ASK. So I worked in Boston Children's in, uh, in the 90s, and I just want to show you, this were, these were psychiatric consults in the ED from the early 80s to the late 90s, and you can see this six-fold increase. And this was happening all over the country in the 90s. Mental health patients were just flooding emergency departments. So on any given night in this, what in Boston Children's used to be a 25-bed ED, on any given night, 10 of those beds were taken up by mental health patients. And the nurses were just beside themselves. And then one night, one of the kids took a medical implement and stabbed themselves. And they didn't die, but it was time to have a tool, a triage, where we could discern you know, who is at risk for suicide and who's not. And so this tool um, was born. I was part of this research team that developed the risk of suicide questionnaire. And it was created for mental health patients only. So the study involved mental health patients and it was four questions with the triage nurse asking, starting with, are you here today because you try to hurt yourself? So as you can see from the psychometrics, we had great sensitivity captured almost all the kids at risk. But look at this problem, and I'm sure anyone who's working in ED is like, oh, 37% specificity, right? That's the false positive rate. That's bad. That's low. But at the time, this was the best we had. This was in 2001, and we were going to take it. Um, when I moved from Boston to Bethesda, Maryland, and started working at NIH, the uh, now clinical director, Dr. Marilyn Powell, she's a child psychiatrist, she had come from Children's National. She was director of psychiatry in the ED at Children's National. She said, can we use your tool for all comers, all medical patients? And I actually, I didn't know because I believe that tools should be tested in the populations they are used. So we launched the Ask Suicide Screening Question Study. We had these three children's hospital, Boston, uh, DC, and Columbus. And what we did was we oversampled the medical patients because this tool was gonna be for medical patients. And we infused the sample with psych patients because we wanted to make sure that uh, there were kids who were suicidal in the study. So the way you make a screening tool, just briefly, is you take a group of candidate items and you take a gold standard. We took the suicidal ideation questionnaire, the SIQ, and you whittle down, in this case, 17 candidate items, you statistically model them against the gold standard, and you come up with the fewest number of items that'll capture the same people as, at risk as the gold standard. Now, people will usually ask me, well, if you have a gold standard, why are you making a new tool? So the SIQ is a 30 question, item questionnaire. There's no way a triage nurse is given 30 items at triage. Um, so we came up with, with a shorter way to do this. And so without going through all the statistics here, happy to answer questions at the end, um, we came up with, with four items that had uh, really good sensitivity, really good specificity, and um, this is the ask. So it's four questions. In the past few weeks, have you wished you were dead? In the past few weeks, have you felt that you or your family would be better off if you were dead? In the past week, have you been having thoughts about killing yourself, and have you ever tried to kill yourself? If the patient answers yes to any one of these four, they're given the acuity question. Are you having thoughts of killing yourself right now? And that last question determines whether or not the patient is acute positive or non-acute positive. So we were delighted to see that in this study, the specificity was 87.6%. So that's the true negative rate. And so that will limit false positives. So just overall, because there were psychiatric patients in the study, the uh, overall screen positive rate was 18%, but we were most interested in the medical patients. It was a 4% screen positive rate. Uh, 
Uh, it was feasible. It actually takes 20 seconds to give. It wasn't disruptive to the workflow. People, it, it, we had some pushback from the IRB in the beginning. Parents will never let you ask kids who are coming with medical problems if you're, to screen them for suicide enroll in this study. We actually had uh, over 60% enrollment rate. Some, some of the hospitals had an 80, over 80% 80 enrollment rate. Though the ask is now available in the public domain. Uh, we also put an evaluation question in, ask the kids, should nurses and EDs ask kids about suicide risk? And so here's what they said. Uh, over 95% said yes, because a lot of kids, especially teenagers, get sad and don't have anyone to talk about it with. So if a kid's already in the ER with people who are trained, it's a good time to talk, because a lot of them are dying, running away, feeling stressed out because of their parents and don't know what to do. Because when sometimes when no one asks, they feel no one cares. When someone asks, they know someone cares about them. And then the 5% that said no, we looked at their answers. You should only ask kids that have mental health problems. Um, it's not some, this is this fear of iatrogenic risk. This is a big myth that if you ask them, it'll put the idea in their head and that people aren't going to tell you they're going to lie. So the ask has actually been validated now in the inpatient medical surgical unit, the outpatient primary care and specialty clinics. We just finished our study with testing the ask in adult patients and it turns out it's robust there. We're also looking at it in schools and, and these other facilities. We're testing it in the ASD NDD population. And we're really excited about our partnership with the Indian Health Service now. And we're hoping to pilot it. We have started piloting it in, um, on a reservation in um, Arizona and hopefully rolling it out to all those uh, hospitals as well. So in, in just for time, sake, I'm going to just go real quick through the, we validated on the inpatient medical surgical unit. Um, I just want to highlight that I'm going to go quickly through these slides, but out of uh, the 600 patients, there was only a 0.5% acute positive rate on the inpatient medical surgical unit. So it was very manageable. Um, we also looked at in the outpatient clinic at, at Children's Mercy, I want to show you this because these are the subspecialty clinics. Look at the rate in the diabetes clinic, and even all the way down to the sports medicine clinic. So these are kids showing up as sports medicine who, if someone didn't ask them, would be otherwise undetected. And they did it at Boston Children's. Um, and again, that rate looks high, but you have to take into consideration it's a research study, there's selection bias of who's going to be in it. We're finding much lower rates on inpatient medical surgical units. Uh, I'm sorry, in outpatient primary care units. But I want to talk a little bit about depression screening um, because when the Joint Commission came out with that Sentinel event alert, people were like, oh, this is great. We're using the PHQ-9. We'll just screen for depression. It's the same thing, right? Suicide, depression, same thing. Well, it turns out it's not. Um, and just to give you, uh, we actually embedded the PHQ-A in our validation studies because we wanted to look at, is depression screening the same as suicide risk screening? Um, and so there's, anyone not familiar with it, it's a nine item, really good depression screen. I, I'm not slamming the PHQ, but it has one problem. This is the, what's supposed to be the suicide item. So if you can see what the problems are with it, it, it actually has a question that violates the tenets of instrument development has a question with an or in it, right? So if someone has answers a question with an or in it, you don't know what side of the question they're answering. It also says hurting, it doesn't say killing. There's been several studies now that are looking at that the PHQ is most likely an inadequate tool to screen for suicide risk. And in fact, even in the big PHQ-9 study with Greg Simon, uh, it missed 39% of people who died by suicide were negative on PHQ. So let's look at, in our inpatient sample of 600 kids, uh, we had 13% screen positive for suicide risk, 17% screen positive on the PHQA, and 7% endorsed item nine. And if you put these all together, you find that had you only screened with the PHQ, you would have missed a third of the kids at risk for suicide. And had you only used item nine, which a lot of people do, you would have missed 56% of the kids at risk for suicide. So moral of this story is if you're going to screen for depression, that's great. People should be screening for depression, but if you're going to screen for suicide risk, use a suicide risk screening tool. Um, and then there's something that outpatient clinics do a lot that 
they, they screen with the PHQ2, and if the patient screens positive, they give the nine, and if they screen positive, they give the suicide risk screen. And, and why are we making patients jump through these hoops? Uh, it's, it's actually, there is no evidence to show that this is a good way to screen for suicide risk. So what we did, because people wanted one tool, was we stuck the ask on the bottom of the PHQ so that there would be just one sheet of paper because that's what people were interested in. Okay, so screening, just tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, how do you put this into practice? And again, I'm, I'm gonna go a little bit quick through these because I wanna leave time for questions, but as we all know, pediatric providers are the de facto mental health providers for kids. But there's a lot of barriers for screening, right? There's time, that's the biggest barrier. There's, it's hard to ask, there's a lot of discomfort. So when we went to adapt this for the first time in a real world setting, I needed a pediatrician superhero and I got one in Dr. Ted Abernathy and that's him on the left. And he attended one of my talks when I was speaking at the AAP and he said, I wanna do this in my practice. And so he said one of the things he was most worried about that were parents being worried about putting ideas into kids' heads. So this is the number one myth of suicide. You know, I always tell parents, if you're gonna put ideas, like think about putting ideas into kids' heads, clean your room, do your homework. Though, you know, those don't really work. So this absolutely is a myth. And, and in case they didn't believe me, there's at least four studies now just refuting this myth. So just some preliminary results from Dr. Abernathy's study is he looked at 270 patients he had 11% screen positive risk, which is high. I'm gonna tell you that's higher than most because he had a population that went up to 24. So the older you get, the higher your numbers are gonna be. Um, and he only had one patient at acute risk. And only a third had been asked about suicide risk and half of all his positive screens were a single yes to the behavior question, which is what we're finding in all the data now. So that's good news and bad news, right? So the bad news about that is there's a lot of kids who have tried to kill themselves. The good news for the screeners is that almost over half of your positive screens are probably gonna be something that's not the business of the day. It's gonna be something that's already been taken care of because the parent knows about it, maybe the kid's in treatment for it. So that takes away a lot of the positives. We have developed this ASK toolkit to go along with the ASK. Um, it has a brief suicide safety, it has scripts. You, you're already doing this, so you don't need this, but it's been uh, translated into 16 different languages and we're starting to validate them in, those, in some of the countries that speak these languages. What's considered a positive screen on the ask? A yes to questions one to four, or for kids, if they refuse to answer, we consider that a non-acute positive. That's because we have data uh, Jeff Bridge and Jack Ruff-Phelan had data from Cincinnati Children's and Nationwide Children's showing that 85% of the kids who refused to answer had significant psych history. So we count them as non-acute positive. And if they say yes to one through four, you ask an acuity question, um, number five. So the two ways are the non-acute and acute. Um, the non-acute positives patient is asked to wait until the second tier happens, the brief suicide safety assessment. We have just, been, I personally have the Joint Commission uh, about how to not make hospitals who have non-acute positive put sitters on kids from their clothes. And they're in agreement with this. So we're looking at a way to disseminate this information. This is like somebody, if somebody was in a hospital and they had high blood pressure through the roof, and you wanted them to wait to see the cardiologist and they left, would you tackle them in the hallway because they're leaving? No, you would have them sign out against medical advice. And, and we're trying to make this on par with that. Um, the acute positives in the medical setting, that yes to number five is incredibly rare. And especially among people presenting with non-behavioral health problems. And it doesn't require the second step because this is an automatic psychiatric evaluation. Okay, so, and, and what we're seeing now in places that have implemented is that it's turning out to be one or two extra positives a week. So this is the clinical pathway in summary, the brief screen, the second step, which is the most critical, and the third step. Um, Dr. Namuro actually had this great idea to create three different pathways. And so ACAP put together 
working groups to do a pathway on delirium, a clinical pathway on somatization disorder, and a suicide risk clinical pathway. So this is now available. Um, Dr. Brombot and I co-led the suicide screening group and it, I don't expect you to read this, but it starts out with screening with the ASK and then the brief suicide safety assessment with either the CSSRS or, some, or the ASK brief suicide safety assessment or anything you want to use. And then that determines the, whether or not the child needs a full mental health evaluation. So again, um, here at Connecticut Children's, you use the CSSRS. We also created something called the Ask Brief Suicide Safety Assessment. I'm not really going to go through it too much, but it helps operationalize next steps because some people were having some issues with the CSSRS and did risk stratification. But what we tried to do is help you make the decision of what to do next. And as soon as you get to that decision, you stop. So we're hoping that the Brief Suicide Safety Assessment really should take 10 minutes or less in an ED. And as soon as you have the next step, you stop. So we have the brief suicide safety assessment for the inpatient medical surgical unit, the outpatient um, settings as well. We also have trainings, um, resources for the patients, resources for staff in this toolkit. Um, I'm gonna skip this one. So when we look at implementations, our biggest hospital that's screening with the ASP is um, this Parkland in Dallas. They've actually screened over 100,000 patients now. And what they're finding is the rate housewide is 3% or less. Um, it's a little higher in the ED, it's about 6% in the ED, but on outpatient, it's 2 to 3%, inpatient, 2 to 3%. Uh, hats off to Connecticut Children's for their amazing work in this, and I hope you'll publish this soon. That Dr. Rogers gave me uh, this information to put on this slide, that you've screened over 10,000 patients, 10 and up, which is really incredible. And it, the rates are 15% among behavioral health patients, 5% among the medical patients. And it, these compliance rates of 85 to 87% and 89, those are crazy high. I will tell you if someplace has over 60 with compliance for screening, we're happy. So my, my uh, hat's off to you and I applaud you for your great work that you're doing in the emergency department. And, and this 5% is really right online with uh, what we're seeing. So safety planning is really important when a child screens positive and there's ways to do briefer suicide um, safety plans with you make sure you have warning signs. What are you gonna do if it's two in the morning and you're having thoughts of suicide? Who are you gonna call? You, you go over some coping strategies um, and this could be a whole talk and a half in itself. So safety plans important means restriction, safe storage. Can't tell you how important that is that parents do not think about that their kids have the codes to how to get into use the gun and the bullets. Like they don't think about that. They don't think about their medicine cabinets full of pills. Um, so that's really important to go over. Fostering resilience is another thing pediatric providers can do. Um, I'm gonna kind of skip through this, but you know, resilience and, and Resilience can be borne out in anybody. And it's, it's messy. It doesn't mean that you're immediately okay. It's helping kids find coping strategies. So these are things to do that um, pediatric providers can do. Okay, so in summary, universal screening should be housewide. Um, I'm gonna advocate for that. You did such a great job in the ED. It's time to move it now to the other units. Uh, the clinical pathways can prevent over-responding with this three-tiered system. Use depression screens to screen for depression. Use suicide risk to screen for suicide. And resilience and coping strategies can be critical factors in reducing suicidal behavior. Um, I'm going to end with an example from Dr. Abernathy's uh, study or his practice, actually. They started with a pilot study, 12 and over well visits, because it's really good to start with the studies. And then one day a mom brought in an 18-year-old, so she thought he had mono. This was a scholar athlete, socially connected, one of those kids who has everything going, scholarships college. Um, and you know what? The nurse was not supposed to screen him, but the nurse had a bad feeling that something wasn't right. And, and how many lives have been saved by nurses who just have bad feeling, right? So she screened him with the ask, and this is how he scored. He scored yes on all three of those. He never tried it before, and this was the acute positive. 
So it turned out that he had been at a party um, a few weeks before and he was cited for, he, the party got busted by police and he was cited for underage drinking. And so he was in jeopardy of losing his scholarship. This kid had a plan to kill himself. And nobody, he would have been the kid, Dr. Abernathy swears, had this nurse not screened him, he'd be that kid you read about in the newspaper while everyone's shaking their head like what was wrong. Um, and so I, Dr. Abernathy had him and went through the brief suicide safety assessment, didn't know what to do. And the kid said to him, you know, before I came here, I had no hope. But now that I'm talking to you, I have a lot of hope. So he's convinced this nurse saved his life. But what we don't want is nurses to have to rely on their intuition, right? It, it just should be every kid, every time. So the biggest concern when we do screening is people say, how am I gonna manage those extra people that screen positive? How are we gonna manage that in our setting? So if you'll give me 27 seconds, I'm gonna give it to you in Dr. Abernathy's words. No one deserves to die by suicide, no one. And uh, the one thing that motivated our group more than anything in the world when we started talking about doing this was, it wasn't how many were we going to catch, it was how are we going to deal with one that we don't catch? And how are we gonna handle the death of one of our patients by suicide? And that we couldn't live with. If I could clone him, we could reduce the suicide rate. Um, Okay, so big thank you, big shout out to a whole bunch of people that went into uh, creating all these studies. And uh, I'd love to open this up to questions. Thank you. Yes. Hi, thank you so much for that presentation. Two quick questions. Is the PHQA and the ASQ combo available? And second question, any differences between when a nurse is asking the questions versus um, a patient self-report? I think you had said it was validated for both. Yeah, great question. Um, PHQA and the, with the ask on the bottom is available. Happy to give that out to anybody. Um, I think we're trying to put it on our website right now. That's a great question about, there's some hospitals that give the child a tablet and have them fill it out self-report and there's some places that the nurse asks. Um, we, we tried to create the ask to be verbally administered, but when we asked that we did um, a quick study and we looked at kids and their preferences and they were split right down the middle. Um, I have some people that, some groups that are interested in studying this so we don't know the results, but it, it looks like it can be done both ways. Can you say just a little more about the role of the school system and the school nurses in particular and whether bullying is a, is a key and some of the other questions that we all ask in our offices mm -hmm. that can be explored outside the offices and also whether, uh, especially for minorities, mm -hmm. the political winds have any influence on uh, suicide rates. Two small questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so there are programs now that go into schools. So, for example, Jeffrey Bridge, who's one of the co-creators of the Ask, uh, he and John Ackerman from Nationwide Children are studying uh, a group called Signs of Suicide SOS that goes into school. It's 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 a wonderful program that goes into schools and trains not only the school nurses, but the teachers and the coaches and the kids and the peers and the parents. And so it's a whole systematic approach now. So we, we're having some really good um, programs that go into schools. At the least, I think school nurses should be screening. Um, we have been talking to groups of school nurses, for especially those frequent flyers that show up in school nurses' office. You know, get, why not take 20 seconds and screen those kids for suicide risk? Um, bullying definitely a factor, but it's, it, it, it's in combination with, with some other risk factors. Um, and as far as the political wins, uh, being from the government, uh, I'm gonna take the fifth on that one. <laughs> Anybody else? 
Stephanie Rapp. Um, Lisa, I know the question in the ED often is, is the parent in the room or out of the oh, room? Great and question. you've done so many beautiful studies. I wondered about that and the impact on honesty and clarity and how much do you push and if you could walk us through sure. that. Thank you so much for asking that because I think I, I, I breezed through that. We try to train the nurses to tell, not ask parents to leave the room. And it's not go to the cafeteria and get lunch. It's can you step out? or I'm not gonna ask you to step out for a minute or two. And um, it's, it's not turning to the child and saying, do you want your mother to step out? It's because that puts the child in a, in a bad position. So we, we ask per nurses to do it. And nurses, when we go back and after the trainings, nurses tell me that if you do it like it's normal, the parent just walks out. And the majority of the time, the parent walks out. It is the number one concern of nurses is asking the parent to step out. But the majority of parents will step away. If they don't step out, we say ask, keep screening because it's actually not a bad way to model how to talk to a kid about suicide. So kids will be more frank if the parent steps out. So we try to get them to step out. It's also at that time when the nurse can administer the domestic violence question. I had nurses tell me, well, I said, what do you do when you want to talk about domestic violence with the kid? Because that's also a JC recommendation. Um, and they say, well, we wait for the parent to go to the bathroom or we wait for the parent to go to, you know, leave the room for a minute. But we can just say, we want, we ask these questions in private. Uh, and we, on our script, we say, if we, we're going to ask your child some safety questions, if we have any concerns, we're going to let you know. Can you step out of the room for a minute? And we say that in front of the parent and the child. But it, it would be great to get the parent out of the room when you ask. So ideally, it's a mental health clinician like a social worker. Uh, but there are some hospitals that don't have that resource. And so some hospitals are having the MD do it. Some are having a PA, an NP. It's someone, it, it should not be the ED nurse that does it. It should be um, someone who has one more level of responsibility for the patient that should, and someone who's trained to do that. Because really, that is really meant to be, if you look at it, you'll say, well, how can you do this in 10 minutes or less? But if you start that and you hear your answer as you, as you march through the guide, you can stop that because you know what the third step is going to be. As soon as you make the decision of the third step, you can stop. I think they should have specialty training on how to do that second tier screening. And so we have uh, a webinar that we offer that it's about an hour long that we march through. Like this is how you give a brief suicide safety assessment. Um, so there should be some focal training in that. So uh, we've only had to go back two questions. Uh, our rate of parents refusing to leave the room is about 12%. Um, and we've only had, out of well over 10,000 screens, we've only had 12 parents refuse the screen at all, uh, total. Um, and yes, our providers do it. So APPs and physicians administer the uh, brief assessments. Uh, and the training question, we provide and offer QPR training, which is question, persuade, and refer. It's a basic suicide recognition training uh, for lay folks all the way up through, you know, physicians, anybody can take the training. Uh, and uh, our ED nurses are awesome. And I, I turned around earlier because they deserve all the credit for our high rates of screening. Uh, and they just kick them out. You're going to have to step out. I have to ask these questions. But you tell them we're going to screening we have information in all the rooms, uh, and I think it varies a little bit um, from nurse to nurse, but in general, they're telling them that they're going to ask safety questions, and some of them are about suicide. So, so just say a, a, a little bit more on that. Um, we do have, in the toolkit, we have a sample flyer that EDs or outpatient clinic, when, patient, when uh, parents register, they can give a parent that says, Suicide is a national public health problem, and we're going to be screening. 
but you don't need permission from the parent to screen. Um, it should be on par with just like you wouldn't ask um, if you could take a blood pressure, you could take a temperature. Um, it should be on par with that. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's a really important point, I think. Uh, when, when we were doing a study at uh, NIH now has a study with patients who are suicidal, right? So they're, they're studying suicide in vivo. They're having suicidal patients come to the inpatient unit. And the hospital had us do a year-long failure modes effects analysis, like what if someone dies here? What if someone kills himself? And um, the PI, Carlos Serrati, came to one of the meetings and he said, would you ever tell the oncology people that no one in their treatment is going to die of cancer in this hospital? Like, that doesn't happen. So can we ever get to zero? It, 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 there's, there's a controversy around that name. But especially with kids, I think we believe that it's preventable. We do believe that, especially in young people, it's, it's preventable. And, and the reason why detection of it is so important is because suicidal behavior in childhood is such a gateway to all kinds of psychiatric sequelae in adulthood. And so, you know, there's always, the suicide rate is probably never gonna get to zero, but really important to try to get it as low as possible. I think that's the best answer I can give to that. Right, and, and as you see, Connecticut's one of the lowest rates, but still too high, right? Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned the the comparisons between the PHQ. Um, have you looked at the Columbia DISC and whether or not there's sufficient screening through that, or if this should be something to supplement it? The Columbia, the, the CSSRS? No, uh, the Columbia Depression Inventory. I have not Columbia. looked okay. at that. But we... And there's no study actually looking at the Columbia versus the ASK, but we believe that the Columbia is a really good second tier screen and not brief enough to be the first tier. I'm a developmental pediatrician, so I'm essentially second tier for everything, so that works. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Absolutely. I know. I'm sorry. I feel bad. Even my best New Jersey fast talking couldn't get me through. Okay. So, so there's um, a psychiatrist named Dr. Ken Ginsberg, who is out of uh, Philadelphia. He let me use, uh, he, he has a whole website on build. He has a book that everybody should read called um, Building Resilience in Kids, Giving Kids Roots and Wings. It's, it's a great book, but he talks about these seven C's. And so, if, if pediatric providers can find a way to see the best in a kid, foster, what are you good at? Find, every kid is good at something, but their parent might not be talking about it. And in fact, um, Jonas Sarno has this great intervention with families called FISP, where she has the parent tell the child in the emergency department what they think their strengths are. So when does a kid, sometimes kids never hear that from their parent. So if you're a pediatric provider, you could be the one to, to kind of highlight that. So competence, confidence, you know, these are these building blocks of resilience, feeling connected to a community, you know, someone feeling like they have a purpose and can give back. Building character, what is it about you that, that does good in the world? Contributing in some way so that they don't feel like 
they're disenfranchised and coping, you know, this, this is the number one, like, how do you cope with those thoughts when no one's around and you want to kill yourself? What are you going to do? What is, what are going to be your coping strategies? You know, we teach kids what your, your brain is actually your best coping strategy, your good thinking. What's the difference between a paper tiger and a real tiger? Is, is this problem going to be around? Cause it, teenagers, anyone who knows, I have a teenager, right? Everything's the end of the world. And so how do you teach them that that's not true? There's very few real tigers. Um, and then control, the things that we have control over and what we can do, and then understanding that there's things that we don't have control over that, that we need to cope with. So these are the seven C's. Thank you for asking me to go back. Any other questions? I guess that's thank you.